please remain standing and turn with me, if you will, in God's Word to Luke chapter 7. We'll be reading verses 1 through 17. If you're using uh, one of the church's Bibles, you'll find that on page 863, Luke 7, 1 to 17. Beloved congregation, this is our God's Word to us this morning. Let us give our full attention to it. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them when he was not, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well, and soon afterward he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And he drew nearer to the gate of the town. Behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, And he said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all. And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us. And God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So ends the reading of God's word. Let us ask his blessing on our time in it this morning. Our gracious God, you who dwell within the pages of your word, we long to know you. We long to see you revealed within your scriptures. And so we ask that you would open to us the beauty of your word Open our eyes and our hearts to behold our King and grant us faith to receive all that we hear and read, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As chapter 7 opens, we find Jesus returning to Capernaum. And this isn't the first time he has been there. In chapter 4, 
visiting his hometown of Nazareth, the question arises, why don't you do for us what you did in Capernaum? And then Luke went on in chapter 4 to tell us just what Jesus had done in Capernaum. While he was there, he went to the synagogue and found a demon-possessed man. And he rebuked the demon and he cast him out. And everyone marveled at his authority that even the demons obey. And that was set, what happened to Capernaum was set in stark contrast to his reception in his hometown. Whereas they had marveled in Capernaum, those in Nazareth simply wanted to control him. They wanted him to heal everyone, and they wanted him to make their lives perfect and comfortable and easy. And they refused to give him the respect he was due, because after all, he was just a local boy, the local carpenter's son. But Jesus was not intimidated, and he reminded them of the days of Elijah and Elisha. And he, he reminded them in that in the days of Elijah, there were many widows, and yet he visited only the, the Sidonian woman in Zarephath. And in the days of Elisha, there were many lepers. And yet, he healed only Naaman, who wasn't even a Jew. He was a, a Gentile soldier of, a, of, a, of another country. And Luke wants us to remember all of this as Jesus enters and returns to Capernaum. And in our passage, Jesus meets with another Gentile soldier like Naaman. And he encounters another widow who has lost her son like the widow at Zarephath. And the echoes are, are unmistakable, they're intentional. And that doesn't mean, though, that there aren't distinct differences as well. In chapter 4, those in Capernaum marveled at Jesus' authority and power in his word. But here, in chapter 7, for the first time, it's Jesus who marvels. God wants you to pay close attention because he's telling you what pleases him. And so I want to start uh, uh, this morning by looking at the centurion and the kind of faith that he exhibits And then we want to look at the resurrection of the widow's son and the fear that that Jesus' power invokes among those who watched. And my hope is that as we do this, we'll see that faith in and fear of God are not opposed to each other, but they are two essential aspects of a heart that pleases God. That that fear of God and faith in God, they're not exclusive. They, They must Uh, work together in any heart that that seeks to please the Lord. That's what we want to see this morning. Uh, Our Lord, when he returned to Capernaum, the people remembered him. This was the one the demons obey. And and so his return is welcome. There's there's a buzz in the air. Everyone's talking about uh, the itinerant rabbi who's returned, who's come back. And there's this Roman military leader there who has heard about Jesus' arrival And he has a servant whom he loves who is deathly ill. And so he sent the town elders to implore Jesus to come and heal his servant. And the elders gladly agree. Because this was no ordinary centurion. Uh, This was one who loved the Jews deeply. He cared about Israel. He loved the nation. 
In fact, he loved them so much that he had even paid for the building of their, their synagogue where they gathered each week for worship. In fact, right where Jesus had healed the demon-possessed man on his previous visit. So what's not to like? He's influential. He's wealthy. He's generous. He's the kind of guy you want on your side. Yeah, you will probably do whatever it takes to keep him happy. And so they rush to Jesus. And they pled with him. They list out all the centurion's qualities and credentials. He loves our nation. He's a patriot. He's the one who built the synagogue. He's wealthy and kind. They sum it all up. He's worthy to have you do this for him, verse 4. He's worthy. Those two words tell you more about the, the elders of that town than they do about the centurion and what they value. They, they think that his patriotism and his money entitle him to special treatment from God. Worthy. It means they think he deserves this. Essentially, they don't see themselves as, as asking for grace, but only what's appropriate, only what's fair. That's their, their assessment. But what about the centurion? Does he agree with them? Well, as Jesus draws near his house, he sends some friends to intercept him. And he gives a message, gives them a message to pass on. Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. It's the exact opposite of what the the town elders said. He claims no worthiness. He doesn't think himself entitled to any special treatment. Jesus owes him nothing. He doesn't even think he's worthy to have Jesus enter his house, let alone the healing. The honor would be too great. But he keeps going. He says, therefore, I did not presume to come to you. This is why he sent others to Jesus, not because he's used to ordering people about, which he is, but because he thought approaching Jesus on his own would be too presumptuous. But then he makes his request to Jesus in his own words. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. He's a man who understands authority. He's used to commanding soldiers. He, he knows they'll obey without question because the consequence for disobeying would be too great. But, and, and this is important, understand that, that he's not saying that just as he has his subordinates, Jesus has his subordinates. Um, he, he's saying that he can command men, but Jesus can command sickness to leave. That Jesus can command death to stand down and it will. He's saying that Jesus has authority over nature, creation, and over life and death. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled. We've seen some amazing things in our study of Luke things that cause awe and wonder. 
And over and over we have heard that that's how people responded. They're astonished and they're amazed at what he does and how he speaks. And over and over we've joined with them in their awe and in their wonder. But this is the first time that Jesus has been amazed. The first time that he has marveled. The first time that he has stood in awe. We stand in awe of, of power. We, we look at mountains. We, we see waves pounding the seashore. We, we see a storm blowing with unmatched strength. And these things grab our attention and they inspire wonder and awe. And we respect their power. We admire their strength. But Jesus, not so much. Turning to the crowd that followed, he said to them, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. What impressed him, what caused him to marvel, was the faith of the centurion. So what is faith? Well, you know what you're tempted to believe. You're tempted to believe things like, faith is believing without wavering that God will give you whatever you ask for. Or, faith is the power to create a better future. Or, faith is claiming God's gifts and blessings in your life. Simply put, our temptation, and there are many who would cheer us on and encourage us in this temptation, is to believe that faith is a power that we learn to wield in order to get God to give us what we want. But the faith in our passage, the faith that Jesus admires, lauds, and commends, it doesn't make demands. It doesn't attempt to control God. It doesn't presume upon him. And it doesn't believe that God owes us anything. We don't just want to say what faith isn't. That's maybe too easy. We want to say what faith is. Faith is a total confidence in the power of God. It sees all things as being under his control. It sees all creation as subject to him. It believes that not even death can stop him. Faith is total surrender to God. Faith gets out of the driver's seat. It, it yields, it defers. Faith says, please, and then it waits. And that kind of faith is rare because it's not easy. But it pleases God. It causes him to marvel. Even if you're a Roman soldier in, in occupied Israel, this is, this is, this is the, the invading army. And yet God says, that is what impresses me. And to drive the point home, Jesus heals the servant. Not because he's obligated, but because he wants everyone to understand, this is faith. This is what pleases me. This is what I delight in. And then from there, Jesus headed to a little town called Nain. And as he entered the town, he, inter- he interrupted a funeral procession. Most people would have walked around the funeral procession and said, oh, let's let them be. There's a woman who has already lost her son. 
And so she's already lost her husband, and now she's lost her only son. And to all appearances, she's, she's the opposite of that centurion in, in Capernaum. She's poor, she's unknown. But there is one thing that connects the two, and it's sorrow, it's grief and loss. But unlike the centurion's servant, her son has already passed from life to death. There's no hope here of of keeping death at bay because it has already come and been there. But the Lord sees her and he has compassion on her and he approaches her. But unlike the centurion, we hear no, no pleas, no requests. What could she ask for? It's too late. Her son is already dead. Two words. Two words that change her life. Don't weep. How would you have interpreted those words if you were there? Insensitive, maybe? It's my son. What do you mean, don't weep? Well intended, but misguided? As if he was trying to say, he's in a better place now. Well, yeah, he might be in a better place, but I'm in the darkest place I've ever been in my life. It's hard to know how you would receive those words when you know how the story ends. But I think it's fair to say that, it, that if you were there and you didn't know how the story ends, that your first instinct would not be to think, oh, well, obviously he's going to raise my son from the dead. We have become too good at reading the Bible from a safe distance and we won't get too close. And that's something about Jesus that makes us uncomfortable. He never keeps a safe distance. Sinners, he's there. Prostitutes, he's talking to them. Tax collectors, he's throwing a feast and inviting them over. Lepers, he's touching them. A weeping widow at a funeral, and he makes a beeline for her. Because he's not about keeping a safe distance. He's about being there. And so he pivots from the weeping widow and he goes up and he touches the beer, the coffin, the casket. And that would strike us as weird. But it would strike a first century Jew as scandalous. Because Jews took death seriously. Just read Leviticus. And all the requirements about not touching dead bodies and, and, and what it does to you and makes you unclean and then there's cleansing and there's days of waiting. And, and yes, there are times where it can't be avoided, times where a loved one passes away and, and you have to take care of it and you have to count the cost and say, I'm going to be unclean for a week. But you don't go up and start touching coffins of strangers. But here's Jesus running to touch death. No apparent fear of being made unclean. No instinct to protect himself. He's driven by love for others, not love for himself. 
Be honest with yourself. If you were at a funeral and a stranger wandered into town, interrupted the funeral, said a few words to the mother of the deceased, and then walked up and touched the casket, what would you think? And then what if, at that moment, the deceased sat up and started talking? I think it's hard to know what you would do because it's beyond the realm of plausible. That, that doesn't happen. Relief? Would you feel relief? Terror? Both? I, I'm guessing I would feel terror. That's definitely what happened for those who were there that day. Verse 16. Fear seized them all. Have you noticed how today people are always claiming they want God to come near? They want Him to speak directly to them. They want Him to come and enter the room where they are. They, they want to be close enough to touch. And yet every time in history that he does come near, it's overwhelming. The reason we don't fear his presence is because we are ignorant of who he is. His size makes mountains look like toys. His power makes getting hit by a wave look like getting hit with a feather. His word sends storms running. And he cannot be controlled. The reason we convince ourselves that we want him to draw near is because we have first convinced ourselves that he poses no threat and we are worthy. And if you convince yourself of one lie, others are sure to follow. Those who came face to face with him quickly realized they weren't safe. Do you recognize the power of God and the fact that he can't be controlled? Do you recognize his holiness and understand that he is perfect without spot or blemish? Do you understand his justice? That he can't be bought or bribed? Do you accept the fact that he's totally unimpressed by your patriotism, your bank account, or your popularity. And you get that he owes you nothing and cannot be forced to bless anyone. And on top of all of that, do you understand your own sinfulness, that you've broken his law, you've believed lies, you've rebelled against him, you've tried to control him, and you've been so bold and daring as to tell him that he owes you something? And then finally, do you see that he is a God who is not distant? Do you get that one day you will stand face to face with him and that he will not need speak a word because his eyes will penetrate your soul so deeply that that look will convey everything that needs to be said? If you understand all of those things, his power his goodness, your sin, and the fact that he will draw near, then you understand why fear seized these people. 
So what hope is there? I think that's the great question. It's also why we don't want to miss how Jesus meets the centurion and the widow. He meets them with compassion. Our our hope in facing the God who can't be controlled or bought, our hope is in his goodness. It's that he's not afraid to touch death. It's in realizing that sometimes God rescues his people from death, like he did with the centurion's servant, and sometimes he rescues them through death, like he does with the widow's son. It's in realizing that with God, hope does not end with this life, that his power is so great that not even death can keep him from rescuing his people. When you understand all of that, you realize fear and faith are not opposed to each other. In fact, you can't truly have faith without an appropriate fear. Because you understand that faith is not some power that you wield. Only a fool would believe that. Fear is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of understanding. It leads you to surrender to the God who visits his people and touches death. Because our God doesn't just touch caskets at funerals. When God visited his people by becoming man, he touched death in a whole different way. He allowed Roman soldiers like that centurion at the behest of Jewish leaders like those in Capernaum to drag him off and crucify him. He was not forced. He was not overpowered. He surrendered and he allowed death to touch him in order that he might take our guilt, our shame, and our sin upon himself. It was the greatest act of compassion this world has ever seen. And so when you see death coming and it scares you, when you see your sin and it overwhelms you, when you consider all the ways that you've accused God and you've tried to control him, it's then that you can turn to him with the centurion and say, I'm not worthy, but say the word and I'll be healed. It's then that you can stand there with the widow and hear the words that he once spoke to her in her grief and know that they are intended for you as well. Don't weep. And you can trust his word that, that those who surrender to him in faith will, will live for him for all eternity in heaven and that death will not have the final word because even it must obey him. I think it's interesting that the centurion never saw Jesus. Everything that was said between he and Jesus was done through others. And so it is with us. We live 2,000 years after he ascended into heaven. His word is delivered to us through others. And we're tempted to think that it's insufficient, it's less than ideal, and it's then that those words that Jesus spoke to Thomas are helpful reminders. You believe, have you, because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believe. In other words, God's word is sufficient. It it was not Jesus' physical form that was important, but who he is and what he has done. 
And, and, and all of that is faithfully recorded for us in the scriptures. And so in both episodes of this passage, the emphasis is on his word. Say the word and my servant will be healed. They, they marveled, God has visited, a prophet is among us. But before Luke is done, he will show us that there's another place where we're meant to see Jesus. After the resurrection, Jesus drew near. I love Luke's words. <laughs> drew near. Doesn't keep a distance, safe distance. But Jesus kept them from recognizing who he was. He walked with them on that road uh, to a little town called Emmaus. And Luke tells us it wasn't until he served them the Lord's Supper that, that they recognized him. And the point was to teach us that even if we can't see him in the flesh, we're no, able to see, no less able to see him in the preaching of the word and in the Lord's Supper. Because in the bread and the wine, we see the one who has visited his people and he took on flesh and blood. We see one who had compassion upon us and touched death to rescue us. We see a God who cannot be controlled but who is good and loving and kind. And so in our darkest hours, when our sin and our shame and our guilt overwhelm us, faith and fear must meet. And when they do, our God marvels and he whispers in our ears, don't weep. And so I'd like to ask the elders to come forward that we might receive uh, our Lord's reminder of his uh, grace and love for us in the Lord's Supper. And please join me in prayer. Almighty God, you know our arrogance, our presumption, our quest to control you, to get you to do our bidding, and then to feel justified, to feel worthy and then to think that you are pleased with us. Father, forgive us. But more than that, teach us the beauty of surrender. Teach us what it is to let go and to demand nothing. Confident that you are able to do anything that pleases you, that all nature, the whole universe, and even death itself must obey your word. That not even death, when it has come, can stop you from accomplishing your perfect will. We praise you that you are compassionate, kind, and loving. Teach us to rest confidently in your love, we pray. Amen.